Our doctor is in, and so are the doctors of Capital Health. Welcome to the all-new Health 411. Every Sunday morning at 10, Dr. Jonathan Karp, along with our respected panel of guests from Capital Health, take you on an important medical journey to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. To reach your destination, good health. Health 411 is underwritten by Capital Health. Minds advancing medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology. 1077 The Bronx. 1077 The Bronx. Com, proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 and 2021 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are broadcasting from the Bronx, all digital studios on the campus of Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Welcome to Health 411. I'm your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by Capital Health Medical Center. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the science of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and perspective. Today, we are recording with our student producer, Daniel Geller, and our guest, Dr. Pratit Patel. Dr. Patel is an endovascular neurologist at Capital Health Medical Center, the Capital Health Institute for Neurosciences in Pennington, New Jersey. Welcome to our program, Dr. Patel. So glad to be here. Now, you are a endovascular neurologist. Can you dissect that for our listening audience and tell us what that means? Absolutely, so my background is in neurology uh, which is a broad specialty dealing with uh, any sorts of brain, spinal cord, or nervous system disorders. Uh, I specialized, I did my further fellowships in vascular neurology, mostly dealing with the strokes, but also other sorts of uh, brain blood vessel diseases. And then I further specialized in an intervention aspect, basically uh, minimally invasive uh, treatments of brain and spinal cord blood vessel diseases. Is this something that you always wanted to do? How does one find this career trajectory? <laughs> so some of my friends and colleagues has some background research experience and they uh, set their path to this career from the beginning. My interest was more evolving. Uh, after the medical school, I decided to do neurology because of more specific nature and um, also decrypting this complex nervous system um, and when I was doing neurology, I, uh, I started getting interested in vascular aspects of neurology, particularly if you have certain lesions in the brain, uh, you have certain deficits. So if someone comes in with some weakness or uh, disorders of brain function, we can start localizing that which part of the brain might not be working well. And that part of the decrypting process particularly interested me. So one of the things that attracted you to this aspect of medicine was sort of the problem solving. Exactly. Right. So can you, for people who might not be familiar with the, the physiology, I mean, how do you go from studying the vasculature to being concerned about how neurons and glial cells in, in the nervous system work? What's the connection? So um, it's, Pretty broad question. So, yes. uh, there are majors in neurosciences which studies more of a physiology, anatomy, and just the science behind the nervous system. Um, 
dealing with neurological disease is a little bit different. Um, it's more focused on the syndromes. And for example, certain disease produces certain types of symptoms. And that's what we are focused on as a neurologist. Um, being a vascular neurologist, we focus much more on the stroke or hemorrhage of the brain. And particularly on the intervention aspect, we try to treat those problems uh, with the catheters and minimally invasive techniques. So there's a little bit difference between clinical aspect and scientific aspect of the uh, neurological system. So what? So people might have heard the word stroke and hemorrhage. How are those things similar and how are they different? Sure, yeah. So stroke is broadly applied in which there is sudden change in the brain and part of the brain stops functioning. There are two ways that can happen. The majority of them are called ischemic strokes in which there's a blockage in the brain blood vessel and whatever part of the brain that blood vessel is supplied by stops functioning, stops receiving blood supply, and eventually those cells may die. Uh, and that's called ischemic type of stroke in which there's a lack of blood supply to the part of the brain. Now there's a hemorrhagic stroke, which is on the opposite end, small or relatively bigger blood vessel in the brain bursts open and causes bleeding in the brain, like bleeding from anywhere else in the body. Um, and treatment is different, as you can imagine. And uh, the trajectory of disease and the people who suffer from them are different. Can you tell by looking at, you mentioned a lot of what you do starts with assessing symptoms. Can you tell by looking at symptoms whether somebody has had an ischemic stroke or a hemorrhagic stroke? Uh, we would like to think, but it's uh, not as practical as uh, we would like to hope. So sometimes with the hemorrhagic type of stroke, consciousness or awareness is affected much earlier. People start to uh, have more severe headache early on. And there might be some other telltale signs, like they might be associated with vomiting and rapid deterioration of consciousness. But again, until we do some sort of brain uh, imaging, like a CAT scan or a CT scan of the brain, we can't tell for 100% if it's a hemorrhagic or ischemic stroke. Is there a typical uh, stroke profile of a patient? Like who's at most risk of, of having a stroke? Absolutely. So. The risk factors for stroke are high blood pressure, smoking, cholesterol issues, diabetes, obesity, and something related to obesity called obstructive sleep apnea in which people snore at night and can't breathe enough. These are certain risk factors for the stroke. And surprisingly, high, high blood pressure is the most modifiable risk factors for the stroke, both ischemic as well as hemorrhage. So, so, so a, is a, a portion of your practice um, um, dealing with patients who ha might have some of these factors or do they present to you when things have already reached their peak and the strokes already happened? Yeah, unfortunately, most of the my patient population is after some, uh, somebody already had stroke. However, uh, before stroke happens, the primary care practices play a major role in uh, preventing or reducing the risk for strokes in the brain. So you're one of the people that if, if, if I had stroke symptoms, I might go to Capital Health uh, 
and you'd be one of the people in the masks and the gowns who'd be doing a whole bunch of stuff to me who I'd never actually get to talk to and get to know. Is that the case in an emergency basis? That might be the case. Yeah. So the fascinating for, uh, part of this uh, field is a lot has evolved in the last 10 to mm -hmm. 20 years. So maybe two decades ago, there was not many treatment options if somebody suffered from stroke. You try to give them therapies, stabilize them, and rehab to recover as much as you can from the brain damage. Um, in about 1995, there was a first uh, treatment with the IV clot bursting medication was approved. Um, that treatment is still the mainstay to break up the blood clot in the brain for the ischemic type of strokes, but it's limited that you can offer that only up to four and a half hours of, uh, of symptom onset or last known normal of somebody uh, before they started suffering symptoms. Yeah. How, how, is also, that how is that determined? Is that when they present or do you ask them how long have you... I don't know, lost some vision, how long could you not move an arm kind of thing? Correct. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if, if a person can communicate then, or communicate reliably, then we ask a uh, patient themselves, but majority of times it's the family members, friends, or witnesses. For example, somebody walks into the cafe fine and they start having symptoms in the cafe or uh, collapse then the bystander, not even a family member, can report that, well, they were fine until noon, and noon 15 or so, they started having these symptoms. Is there any sort of surgical treatment for brain bleed or stroke? Yeah, so, uh, so this medical treatment of clot bursting medication started around 1995. The surgical or mechanical treatment also started maybe before that, but did not gain traction or was mainstream until... 2014 or 15, there was a lot of fine tuning technological advances needed. Uh, but now we have this procedure called mechanical thrombectomy for ischemic type of stroke, which is dramatic. So that's the most effective treatment for the large type of stroke in which there's a blockage of bigger blood vessels in the brain. Uh, so mechanically, you can pull out the clot from the blood vessels, restore the circulation that part of the brain, um, and limit the damage from the stroke. The way we do is we poke the artery either in the wrist or in the groin. Used to be groin majority of times in the last three years or so, we can also start doing from the wrist blood vessel. Um, about 75 to 80% of the time, we are successful in removing the clot from the brain and restoring the circulation. And as you can imagine, less brain cells or uh, brain tissue dies, smaller the size of the stroke, better the chances of recovery. So and that has made a huge impact on this devastating disease. Absolutely. And I want to hear more about this, about how it's done, about, about the symptoms that somebody might suspect that uh, either a hemorrhagic or a ischemic stroke is happening. But we're going to take a break for some brief underwriting announcements here on the Health 411 program. And we'll be right back with Dr. Pratit Patel. Um, you are listening to 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 
1077 The Bronx. 1077thebronc.com. We're recording Health 411 from the Digital Bronx Studios. Welcome back. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and Dan and I are having a conversation with Dr. Pratit Patel from the Capital Institute for Neurosciences at Capital Health Medical Center. Dr. Patel is an expert in endovascular neurology, and we're hearing a little bit um, about different kinds of stroke, and he was telling us about mechanical thrombectomy and sort of the way that that's done, and sort of the success is about 75% of the time a clot can be removed. Dr. Patel, that would mean if you're going to open somebody up, you've got to know where to go to get the clot, right? before you start. Yeah. And, and so how is that done and how long does that take between somebody showing up with some symptoms and you being able to go in there and go get the clot? That's uh, that's a good question, Jonathan. So if we were to zoom out first, like for example, somebody's doing their business, enjoying their life, and how do we know that when to call 911? So the acronym we use for education in the community is called BFAST. Um, the fast meaning facial droop, arm weakness, speech difficulty, and T for time. If somebody is having a one side of the face weakness, arm or leg weakness, trouble talking, or trouble seeing on the one side, that's a sign of stroke. And they should call, or their bystander or family members or friends should call 911. Uh, and that activates the chain of command. The EMS or EMT people are extremely well-trained where to take the patients with the stroke symptoms. As a matter of fact, we have something unique at Capital Health we call mobile stroke unit in which actual stroke ambulance reaches the patient and expedites the treatment. Um, in stroke, about 2 million brain cells die every minute. So time is crucial, extremely important. Sooner you get the treatment is the better. Um, then the ambulance brings the patient to the hospital. We do the CAT scan to make sure if it's a hemorrhagic or ischemic type of stroke. Determine if the patient has a, a ability to receive or candidacy to receive IV clot bursting medication, as we talked earlier. And we also do something called CT or MR angiogram of the brain in which non-invasively we take the pictures of the brain blood vessels and determine if there's a blockage in the major blood vessels of the brain. Now, what's the difference between something like a stroke and an embolism? The stroke is more of a clinical syndrome in which basically there is a, there is a sudden dysfunction of or lack of function of certain parts of the brain, just like a heart attack. It's like a major term for the brain dysfunction or brain attack. Embolism is a specific word in which the blood clot travels from anywhere else outside the brain and goes up in the brain, gets lodged into the brain blood vessels and causes stroke, mm -hmm. ischemic type of stroke. Okay, so an embolism causes a stroke. They're not different. They're different things, but that's... Okay. Yeah. Embolism is like a blood clot itself. Now then, what's the distinction between those and an aneurysm? Right, so aneurysm causes... Uh, so first of all, aneurysm is very common about... One in 50 Americans uh, is the usual stats for uh, presence of aneurysm. Not all aneurysm causes trouble. Uh, aneurysm is basically a weakening of the certain part of the brain blood vessel, and it causes ballooning at that weak spot. Mm -hmm. 
either causes balloon type structure or irregular widening expansion of that vessel wall. It itself doesn't cause many symptoms unless it's very large. The problem arises when that balloon pops open or that aneurysm bursts open in the brain and causes this bleeding in the brain that's called subarachnoid hemorrhage. And that's arguably the most devastating type of bleeding that can happen in the brain. A lot of people like the stats say about 30 to 50% of people can't even make it to the hospital if they suffer from this type of bleeding. So it's extremely devastating. And the treatment for that, first of all, when they come to hospital is we control the blood pressure so the blood doesn't gush out of that bleeding point. Uh, most of the time that aneurysm seals off itself temporarily. And then we treat the aneurysm after the blood pressure is controlled and the pressure in the brain is managed either by the tube through the skull or with the medications or patients themselves sometimes uh, manage enough that they don't need any external uh, drainage. And the next order of business is to treat the aneurysm so it doesn't bleed again. Mm -hmm. That can be done two ways. The traditional way or many years it's been done uh, by neurosurgeons is cutting open the skull going through the brain, finding that aneurysm and clipping it, basically clamping it from the outside so it doesn't bleed again. More recently, in last uh, 10 to 20 years, it's done endovascularly, just like a mechanical thrombectomy. Poking the artery in the wrist or vein, we pass a small catheter, reach that aneurysm and plug it up from inside with the metal coils. It's called coiling of mm -hmm. aneurysm. And majority of times, like 80, 90% plus of uh, times, this aneurysms are treated from inside, from the blood vessel. Can you, can you get pretty much to the entire brain? Depending uh, at, where least they, the, oh. at least the major blood vessels, yes. Wow, are there most other areas of the brain where aneurysms happen more commonly or strokes happen more commonly? Yeah, so aneurysms, they're like certain locations. The branching points, especially when the two, uh, when the blood vessel divides into smaller branches, that's a more common location for aneurysm to form. This uh, anterior communicating artery is the most common location. Other locations are posterior communicating artery, ophthalmic artery, middle cerebral artery, internal carotid artery terminus, also back of the brain, basilar artery. Mm -hmm. These are all the verbiage, but this is this, this, this is common location. It, it, it sounds like these are all the branches of the, the, the circle of Willis. <laughs> Correct, <laughs> yes. they are. Uh, and really, that's that's where the usual uh, aneurysms form, and they, most of them are reachable with the catheters from inside the blood vessels. Wow! So you can get from somebody's groin or, or wrist up to those. So this has got to be surgery that's done. I would say, I mean, with you know, with computers or some sort of. I guess I'm old. I'd call it microsurgery kind of thing. This is, like I said, you're not yeah. opening up the skulls to get to these areas that are deep within. Oh, it's like a small IV puncture into the wrist or groin artery. And inside the artery, we go through the blood vessels mm. with the help of virus catheters under mm. x-ray guidance. Okay. And you said so you, we, you have a 70 to 80% success rate doing this? That's for the opening up the blood vessels with okay. the oh. mechanical thrombectomy and the ischemic okay. type of stroke. Uh, the hemorrhagic type of stroke, if the, the, a lot depends on the shape of aneurysm. Mm -hmm. For example, if it's a uh, omega-shaped aneurysm with the smaller neck, you can imagine it can hold the metal coils nicely inside without falling off. If someone has a C-shaped aneurysm with a broad neck, 
it might be difficult to treat from inside because the that's the wide open mouth may not hold the metal coils or whatever plugging material we are using to uh, to seal the aneurysm. It may drop off, go up in the brain and cause stroke. Uh, and so the resolution on the imaging devices you're using are good enough that you can tell the shape of the tear. That's pretty cool. Yeah, shape of the aneurysms. Yeah. It, it's much detail. You can see the millimeter to millimeter difference. And we want to see because a lot can change within the millimeter in the brain. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I'm interested in is that you, you can you can see where a clot is or the aneurysm is and sort of go after it. Is it typical that somebody will present with just one clot or are there sometimes multiple things and can um, the mechanical thrombectomy go after multiple regions? Yeah, mechanical thrombectomy pretty much can reach uh, any bigger blood vessels in the brain. It can't reach like less than a millimeter. Okay. It can, but technically it becomes difficult and more risky. Um, most of the time people present with the one blood clot. Okay. Or in the one area of the brain blood clot. There are rare occasions in which the both sides of the brain or multiple branches in the brain are uh, blocked because there's just too many blood clots coming from the circulation, mostly from heart. Uh, but that's more, more, that's less common or rare. Most yeah. common blood vessel that's blocked in the in this type of large vessel occlusion strokes is in the middle cerebral artery. Yes, that's the major branch. Right, and that that would lead to some of the major symptoms that people see are parts of the brain that um, the middle cerebral artery f feeds into, where it's right. speech speech disturbances, some motor disturbances. to sort of sort of see that. When, yeah. when when you're doing this and somebody presents with the symptoms of a let's say a um, of a blood clot stroke, um, can you tell if they've had previous sort of mini strokes before, and can you sort of repair damage that existed prior to them presenting to you? Yeah, unfortunately, the damage that's done, basically the neurons that died, they cannot be regenerated as of now. Um, Previous strokes, you can tell either by taking a history from the patient or family member that if they ever suffered uh, this type of symptoms before or more based on MRI. MRI can sometimes, most of the time, can tell if there has been any previous damage to the brain. So you said but that... Somebody, I'm sorry. Oh, you, you can go ahead. Uh, but when somebody comes in with the acute or more recent stroke-like symptoms, priority at that time is to limit the damage from that stroke and figuring out if they had prior damage or recovery, those kind of things, a little bit, few hours later. Mm -hmm. so, so, so Dan, let's, I'm going to pause you for a second because we're going to take a break on Health 411 for our underwriting announcements. You can lead off the next segment and, and ask your question. Sounds your good. Thought. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com, and we'll be right back. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We're recording Health 411 from the Digital Bronx Studios. You are listening to our conversation today with Dr. Pratit Patel of the Capital Institute for Neurosciences at Capital Health Medical Center. Dr. Patel is an endovascular surgeon who helps treat patients who have had strokes 
um, and other vascular brain disorders. And at the end of the last segment, I, I, I apologize for cutting you off, Dan, but you That's had a question right. for Dr. Patel. Yeah, so earlier you had said that as of now, we have no way to regenerate those, these neurons now. Is there any research showing that that could be possible? Is there any clinical trials going on with that at all? There has been a lot of stem cell research going on, try to uh, maximize the recovery for the patients who suffered major strokes. So far, we we were out of luck. We mm -hmm. don't have any promising results that we can regenerate the brain cells or um, remake the function of the brain cells that are dead. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of research going on in that. A lot of clinical trials and a lot of preclinical trials which are first tried in non-humans and mm -hmm. then transferred that research to humans. Now, if somebody who shows up at Capital Health, do they uh, have to be concerned about you doing research on them or are you using the, 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 the sort of the acceptable procedures or the standard care stuff that's happening? We do mostly a standard of care approach. Uh, occasionally, we try to participate in the clinical trials, but they are like phase three, which are already gone through animal trials, phase one, small number of patients, phase two, uh, slightly bigger number of patients. And those research uh, trials are performed with extensive consent of the patients. Yes, and, and their family. So if anybody is listening and is worried about sending yeah. a family member um, to Capital Health, they're going to get the standard of care. They're not going to be experimented on without full no. consent. Full uh, consent. Informed and, consent uh, is the formal term for that. Yeah, we take a permission from them. Yeah. Um, and, and, and can you sort of, we're talking about some of the specific things that happen and some of the specific things that, that, that you do. Can you sort of in a general way sort of lay out the expectations for family members or a stroke patient? So somebody presents to the hospital, they're having speech problems or loss of vision or something, and they start all this tests and eventually they end up having surgery. Um, assuming everything goes well, like how long does that process take? What's the hospital stay? When does rehab start? What does it look like for a patient and their families? Yeah, that will depend on the severity of the stroke and also type of stroke. For example, if someone comes with a ruptured aneurysm, they have to be in ICU, uh, neuro ICU at least for 10 to 14 days, which we are equipped with here. Uh, because when you have bleeding in the brain, that blood in the brain can cause irritation of the blood vessels in the brain, neurons, glial cells, and other tissue in the brain, and that can cause a lot of complications down the road, like seizures, narrowing of the blood vessels, further strokes, uh, other organs can be affected. So the bleeding type of the stroke usually have longer stay in the hospital, at least 14 days, I would expect. Um, and during their stay, they would be evaluated by therapists, like physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, if they can swallow themselves by the end of the hospitalization. And that will determine if they're good enough to go to hospital or they will need some intensive rehabilitation before uh, they can be transitioned to home. Or they may need some what something in between, like outpatient rehab or subacute rehab. With ischemic type of stroke, uh, depends on, again, how big of a stroke they ended up having at the end. Smaller stroke may have shorter stay, like two, three, four days, and they may go to home or rehab after that. During that time, they try to determine what caused the stroke to begin with and try to modify that so we can prevent more strokes in the near future. 
One of them might be narrowing of the carotid artery that goes up in the brain from the neck. If there's a blockage, then they may need a procedure like a stenting or cleaning up called uh, endarterectomy surgery. So they don't have keep having stroke from that um, junk in the carotid mm -hmm. artery. Mm -hmm. Other uh, investigations like heart echocardiogram and uh, monitoring of the rhythm. So yeah. I would say ischemic type of stroke anywhere from three to seven days, then home versus rehab hemorrhagic or bleeding type of stroke, seven to 21 days, mm -hmm. and then rehab, depending on how they are doing. And that, that time clock of days start would start after the BFAST acronym. This is after you've gotten into the hospital and you're already you know, being monitored and, and um, surgery's happening and you're stable and every, everything is great. So this can take a long time. Now, going back to the, the risk factors, you mentioned high blood pressure, smoking, cholesterol, obesity, sleep apnea. One of the things you didn't mention um, as a risk factor, um, I'm gonna, you'll see where I'm going with this, is, is age. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow that up with how is the COVID pandemic influencing some of these um, vascular things that are presenting to you in your practice? Age is a, is a non-modifiable risk factor, so we can't do anything about it anyway. <laughs> uh, but uh, definitely a lot of these diseases are of uh, elderly. So okay. um, ischemic type of stroke is more common in elderly because they have accumulated more risk factors uh, during their life. But again, young patients are not immune from any of the disease. If they have risk factors, either from genetics or uh, from lifestyle, they can have strokes too. So I don't want age to be considered that uh, someone young cannot have stroke. Yeah, and I, I bring that up because just one of the things when I'm teaching about nervous systems and one of the worst things you can do to somebody who has maybe slurred speech is to, assuming that they're sober and they're college students, is to tell them to lay down and go to sleep. Yeah, and, yeah, and that happens unfortunately yeah. more, a lot, lot commonly than you would think. Uh, people either themselves brush it off and try to sleep on it mm -hmm. and lose valuable time that we can uh, reduce the damage to the brain. But any of the stroke-like symptoms, as you mentioned, call 911. Don't wait. Yeah. Are, are, did, were people doing that? Is there a, 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 a significant amount of uh, calls that end up not being strokes that end up being something else? Yeah, actually more than half of the times. Oh, really? So fine. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably good. Yeah, you re people are better paying be attention. safe than sorry. Yeah, yeah I mean, in EMS. A lot EMS. of times you're discovering something else that causes symptoms and which you need a treatment, treatment anyway. Mm -hmm. In EMS, we often get calls of stroke-like symptoms, and it and more often than not, it's not a stroke, but it is always better to be safe than sorry. So as an EMS, are you making that decision in the in the hospital van, or you actually take the people so, to the hospitals to do? I'm not a crew that? chief, so I don't make the decision. My crew chief makes the decision, but if somebody wants to go to the hospital, we have to take them. It doesn't matter if it's a stub toe. It doesn't matter if they're just sad. If they call us and say, I want to be transported, we transport. But for stroke-like symptoms? You're gonna the, the 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 ambulance will take them to the yes. hospital for like a thorough evaluation. Absolutely, Absolutely. Okay. that's good. So I want to follow I want to follow that up. And one of the reasons I asked about age is the awareness, especially talking to college kids, is that some of these symptoms are not just unique in the elderly. But one of the things I'm reading about are changes in vascular disease, even some of these you know arteries that you've mentioned in younger populations, a result of long COVID. Are you seeing any of that? 
Yeah, so COVID sometimes, like uh, extreme forms of COVID causes a lot of blood clots in the body and a lot of people are aware and know about that. That blood clots can be anywhere in the legs, in the lungs, in the heart, or it can be brain. And uh, some of those uh, COVID patients end up having a blood clot in the veins of the brain. So, so far we talked about the arteries. Oh, uh, really? So, 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 so the, the, the COVID symptoms are more, more likely to be the drainage from the brain as opposed to the arterial blood. It can be either. Oh, uh, interesting. Interesting. The, the venous uh, clots can happen from the uh, hypercoagulable or this blood clot disorders from the COVID. Wow. And this more recent advances, as we talk about this endovascular techniques, as mm -hmm. you can go into the vein and remove the clots mechanically, just like from the arteries as well. Oh, that's pretty. That's that's very interesting. And and would you enter? I guess you'd enter a vein somewhere else. Would it also be the wrist from, or the groin sort of thing? From the groin mostly. It's a little bit bigger. So what what makes what makes those two places the most common uh, points of entry? Uh, so traditionally, it's been the femoral artery in the groin because it's big, mm -hmm. um, and it's relatively accessible. If you were to control the bleeding after you took out your devices. Easier to press against the bone so you don't keep bleeding. Mm -hmm. um, and there's no dangerous structures nearby mm -hmm. that you can accidentally damage. Um, and that makes those two uh, structures very accessible. Mm -hmm. And since traditionally been those two access sites, all the devices like catheters and uh, wires have been designed according to their length from the groin or wrist. Gotcha. And I'm assuming these the, the 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 this sort of like endovascular surgeries are all done with the patients anesthetized, and and would that interfere with um, some of the the either a the, this, either a blockage or bleeding from a hemorrhage in in the brain? Does anesthesia complicate that? So some of the procedures, like just the diagnostic, taking pictures part, or uh -huh. even removing the blood clots from the brain, can be done under mild sedation. Oh, really? Twilight so sedation and can oh, be wow. done without That's very interesting. Uh, heavy sedation. However, when you have those millimeters count, like aneurysms mm -hmm. or arteriovenous malformations or other uh, microscopic structures of the brain, then we do under general anesthesia when patients cannot afford to have even a little bit of movements. Yeah, I would think so, or some of these small things. Fascinating. Um, I, we're going to have to take a break for some more underwriting announcements, Dr. Patel, but I want to come back and um, continue this conversation and learn some more things from you. We'll be right back with Health 411 after these underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording Health 411 from the Digital Bronx Studios. Welcome back to our conversation with Dr. Pratit Patel. Dr. Patel is talking about uh, things related to ischemic strokes and hemorrhage. Um, he told us about the BFAST acronym for getting help. Um, but not everything is a, a full-scale stroke. What are some of the other uh, things that you treat, Dr. Patel, and what other techniques are available out there um, for you to help patients? Oh, great. I'm, I'm glad you asked that question. So this endovascular advances in the last 10 years has uh, uh, made a lot of treatment options available for which they were not available previously. So uh, 
most commonly aneurysms, as we discussed, can rupture and cause bleeding in the brain. But ideally, we would like to capture before it ruptures and try to prevent the bleeding in the brain from the first place. So the risk factors for aneurysm include the smoking being the most common and other being the family history. Um, so if someone gets detected that they have aneurysm as because they got the scan for some other reason, most commonly headache or dizziness, or they passed out from some other reason and they found out they have aneurysm. So depending on the size, shape, location, we uh, determine if that aneurysm is high risk for rupture and we try to treat them uh, most often endovascularly from inside the blood vessels before it ruptures. And there are a lot of advances in recent techniques that we can do as safely as it gets. Other treatments available endovascularly are for other brain vessel conditions like arteriovenous malformation or AVM or dural arteriovenous fistula. Big names, but basically there's a shunting of blood from artery to vein without inter, uh, like there's capillary structure in between. And those structures can be treated endovascularly or in combination with the open surgery or in combination with the radiation. Now, uh, there's more recent development in which this type of bleeding on the surface of brain called subdural hemorrhage. Uh, and some people, even after the first treatment, they keep having this type of recurrent subdural hemorrhage in which um, there's inflammation on the surface of the brain and that creates this uh, membrane that keeps leaking and causes recurrent and this keeps happening, uh, in which we can block this artery called middle meningeal artery. And that prevents this recurrent hemorrhage. Uh, and that, that's something we didn't have much treatment before for. Um, if someone comes in with some sort of trauma or bleeding from the head or neck, for example, nosebleeds uh, after either previous surgery or uh, radiation or cancer, we can reach into the nose blood vessel and block it from inside so it doesn't keep happening again and again. Again, this is not the first line treatment, but if the packing or initial ENT treatment fails, then we can do something from inside. Um, these days, uh, we have detection technique for uh, some condition called pulsatile tinnitus, in which someone experiences like whoosh, whoosh, whoosh noise in their ear. And that feels like something coming from the blood vessels near the ear. And it very well may be because of that abnormal connection between artery and vein or because of the narrowing of the vein, the drainage of the brain. Uh, so we can detect these conditions which we didn't understood before very well. And we can try to treat them from inside as well. So it sounds, uh, uh, so, so with all these uh, techniques that are available to you, um, and yes, you sort of have to wait for patients to present. So when you go to work each day, do you necessarily know what procedures you're gonna perform? Or is it sort of who comes through the door that day and you're just ready to go with everything? So it's half and half. Those uh, emergencies we talked earlier, they, they are uh, we are ready to come whenever they are. Right. It's in the morning or in the evening or in the middle of night. Yeah, so, so, so students who are considering different kinds of careers, they have to kind of, you know, sort of match your personality a little bit. Some people sort of like the excitement and are ready to go at all times. Other people like to, you know, just have things to be more predictable kind of stuff. Yeah, this is, this is not a business hour field. You have mm -hmm. to love the procedures and the patients and uh, conditions enough to uh, be ready to go even at the 2 a.m. in the morning. Yes. And so where does an endovascular surgeon get, you know, his or her practice to do this? How do you learn these things? 
it's pretty extensive training. After the med school, you go through one of the three uh, residency programs, either neurology, neurosurgery, or radiology. Then you specialize uh, from each path into the uh, neurovascular space. So we either do stroke or neurocritical care fellowship. Neurosurgeons can go directly from neurosurgery residency into the endovascular or open vascular fellowship. And radiologists have to go through neuroradiology fellowship and then all three uh, branches merge into this endovascular or intervention fellowship, which is about two years. So it's a long path, uh, which is which is needed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to do a certain number of procedures during the fellowship under supervision to be able to certify or qualify. And, you, and you've got to love it. And this is a, it's a, it's a career path of, pa- of passion. And this, it's not this, hard to fall in love to it. I'm glad you did. Yeah. So, 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 you know, as a potential, hopefully not, but potential patient, you know, I could feel pretty confident that whoever's going to be doing these sort of things is highly trained, highly qualified, uh, certainly very, very current on what the standards of care are and, and stuff like that. I should feel pretty good. Hmm. Yeah. All of us try to do that. And we have a lot of conferences and, uh, meetings that we try to keep ourselves up to date because technology is advancing day by day and we Mm -hmm. have to keep up to date with that and one thing to keep in mind is if any god forbid if any of them suffers any of you suffers this uh, type of uh, vascular brain condition you want to be in the comprehensive stroke center in which you have access to this type of uh, procedures open surgery in case if you need, and also neuro ICU, which are staffed 24 by seven by doctors, nurses, who specializes in monitoring these patients and taking care of these patients. And so Capital Health does have the comprehensive neuro center that you're referring to. Correct, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. And so if I am a patient and I undergo any of these uh, procedures that you're talking about, um, is, is this one and done or am I at high risk for another one, no, another neurovascular complication down the line? Depends which one, but you do need a regular follow-up for all these uh, uh, conditions. Aneurysms, for example, if we treat, we want to make sure they're not growing back. It's some of the aneurysms are notorious to be uh, stubborn and try to come back. Uh, same thing with the stroke. If you had a stroke once, you are at higher risk of having a stroke again. And we do multiple things to modify that and reduce the chance of having a stroke again. So regular follow-up is extremely yeah. important. And and, it, and a current theme on this program, how hard it is to change people's behavior. Yeah. You know, and a lot of the things that Dr. Patel has mentioned um, are behavior-oriented, whether it's uh, smoking um, or diet and, and, and things like that. It's, it's hard it's to change. Hard. It's really hard it's not, to change people's it's not behavior. It's easy to change. Yeah, a, a, absolutely. So if you were going to meet with um, undergraduate students who were interested in a, a career in neurovascular surgery, what, what do you have any advice that you would give them? Um, try before you buy. <laughs> yeah, definitely. But not, not as a patient, though. <laughs> not as a patient, no. as, a, uh, as a colleague. So okay. most of the programs, uh, we welcome students to shadow us or mm-hmm. uh, see our life in a day and uh, uh, see if you, can, if you can fall in love with that. Yeah, that's, that, that, that's great. Um, Other way you can get involved is uh, try to participate in our research or data collection or uh, quality monitoring which we try to do on a regular basis. And that 
gives you inside knowledge and how we can continue to improve this field and patient care. Mm-hmm. So the people you work with, the, the nurses, the PAs, um, do they also specialize in um, neurovascular things? Are there career paths for your colleagues? Right, so PA is uh, other good career path that we have dedicated neurosurgery uh, physician assistants that we work with on a regular basis. Um, it's it's a bachelor college program followed by PA school. So it's a relatively shorter field, but uh, you don't get to do as independent or hands-on as a surgeon themselves. Uh, but it's but it's a way to get into this field. Other our neuro ICU nurses are dedicated to neuro ICU, so they are more qualified to detect any minor changes in the patients with any deficits. That doesn't necessarily require any additional education or college, but more of a uh, on-the-job training. Oh, pretty cool. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Patel. We're we're sort of we're coming to the end of this segment. I want to thank Dr. Pratit Patel for joining us in conversation here on the Health 411 program. Thank you, thank you again, Dr. Patel. Dr. Patel is an endovascular surgeon at Capital uh, Institute for Neurosciences at Capital Health Medical Center. Thank you again. And we are having a conversation on 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. Thank you for listening to Health 411. This program is part of Capital Health and Rider University's efforts to bring people together to address all issues associated with health and healthcare. We hope today's conversation with Dr. Pratik Patel has given you some information to think about in terms of strokes, the treatment for so- strokes, and all things related to neurovascular surgery. If you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Remember, you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for every Sunday at 10 a.m. Don't miss the all-new Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp and our expert medical guest from Capital Health. You can listen to Health 411 anytime on demand. Go to 1077thebronc.com slash health411 to listen to past episodes or tune in every Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear the weekend rewind edition of Health 411. Health 411 on 1077 The Bronc is underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff as well as advanced technology.